we're going to be looking at Psalm 84 this morning. And the Psalms is that part of the, New Te- the Old Testament, and it's teaching us to take our emotions and all their complications and all our emotions' messiness and not to bottle them up and not to, to vent them out, but to bring them to God in prayer. And this morning, we come across what I think is perhaps the deepest emotion and the deepest longing that lies behind all of our other emotions and longings. And I think you'll never truly understand yourself until you understand what this is about yourself. It's your longing for home. It's our longing for home. Uh, When I was a counselor at Alpine Camp for Boys, it's a camp in Mentone, Alabama, Uh, they had to train us on how to help young campers deal with homesickness. Um, And for good reason, because uh, some of the terms of of that camp would last up to four weeks, so it's a long long time to be away from home. So they trained us how to deal with homesickness. And if you think about homesickness, it really is a powerful and strange phenomenon. Like, the kid is literally surrounded by so many fun things that a a summer camp can throw at you. You know, there's a water slide, there's the blob, uh, there's a rock climbing wall, there's horses to ride. All all these great things that's designed for this kid's enjoyment, but yet the homesick kid cannot enjoy any of it. Why? I mean, I think it's because he really does love home. And home is, is a good thing. And a good home provides you at least two things that our souls crave and our souls need. First, a good home provides you welcome. A home is where you're both known and loved. It's a place of welcome. And second, it's a place of security. A home is where you're safe, you're at peace, and you're at rest. So how do you help a homesick camper? And first you have to see it's impossible to talk a homesick camper out of his homesickness. So the experts train you to do this, they, they say, affirm the kid's feeling as normal and say to the kid, hey, like, ev- everyone misses home. I miss home too. Home's a good thing. And then secondly, one thing you can do that's helpful is you can pull out a calendar and say, look, we have this many days till you get to go home. And in between now and then, look at all the fun stuff we get to do. Like there's a trip day, there's a 4th of July party, there's all this fun stuff that you, you get to partake in. And so before you know it, you're going to be back home. And so what happens slowly but surely is that this kid, as he begins to embrace his homesickness and as he begins to live with an eye towards his homecoming, he begins to actually enjoy camp. So that's what Psalm 84 is going to do for us this morning, I pray. It's going to let us in on the reality that we are homesick. And we're homesick precisely because we were made to be at home with God. We were made to be in perfect fellowship and union with God, but we lost that due to sin. And so each one of us shows up in this world with this deep longing for home, which nothing in this world can satisfy. And this psalm also lets us in on the reality that this good news, that if you are a believer, then the fairy tale ending is true. That God really is making his home with us. And that something so, so good, eternity with God, is coming down the pipe for you. 
So let's pray together as we consider God's word. Heavenly Father, we come to you now as we hear your word. We pray that you would open up our eyes to see your truth. May your truth shape us and mold us. May it lead us to conviction of sin. May it lead us to repent. And most of all, Lord, may you show us in your word our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So we'll read from Psalm 84. This is God's word. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a, day in your, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So our psalm this morning is teaching us one big thing, and that is our true home, your true home, is with God. And so because God is our true home, we can live with hope. Because God is our true home, we can live with hope. So how do we do that? I have two points to kind of guide us through thinking through that. First, it's embrace your homesickness. And second, anticipate your homecoming. So first, we must embrace our homesickness. So look with me again in verses 1 and 2. He says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. So what's he saying here? He's saying that his soul so longs for God that as long as he's apart from God, he feels like he's about, about to pass out. Or to put it another way, his soul is like one of these branches that I had to cut away from one of my trees growing in, the back, in my backyard. Like it, it, I cut it off and it's on the ground and it still looks green and alive and healthy. But give it a few days and it's going to turn brown and wither. So that, something like that is what the psalmist is getting at when he says his soul and our souls are like that apart from God. We're removed from the very source of life that we're made for. And the little life that we have in and of ourselves is quickly fading and passing away. And so we waste away apart from him and we stand in need of a miraculous intervention if we're ever going to get back to our true life. So the psalmist yearns for this reunion with God, but how does he envision getting reconnected? 
And that's where we see in verse 1, he's daydreaming about the temple that's in Jerusalem. So we have to wrap our minds around this concept of, of the temple. In that day, the temple was symbolic of God's house on planet Earth. It was the special place where he, God revealed himself and made himself known to sinful humanity. And so the psalmist says, how lovely is your dwelling place? Like he's, he's using romantic language. He, the presence of the temple tugs at the psalmist's heartstrings. Why? Because God's temple on planet Earth is making a statement. It, it's as if God is saying, I'm not giving up on my people. I'm making my home with them. And you know what? As my people draw near to me, they're actually going to experience welcome. They're going to get a foretaste of the hospitality and the rest that their souls crave. So look with me again in verse 3, where it says, Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. So he's saying, even the sparrow, even the swallow, or in other words, even the lowliest, the most insignificant and unworthy sinner can find a home, can find welcome in the house of God. He's that gracious. He's that good. He's that eager to invite you in. But you have to notice also where, where does the sparrow find its home? The psalmist says it's at the altar. So, Think back to the temple. In God's temple, his, his house on planet Earth, one of the first things, if you were a worshiper back in those days visiting the temple, one of the first things you would encounter visually when you walked in was the altar. And that's the place where you, as a worshiper, you would be led in by the priest, and you would have with you a sacrifice, a lamb, that would be your substitute, that would take your place. And according to God's own instructions, Concerning the temple, you would place your hands on the head of this lamb and you would confess your sin over it. And that would symbolize the guilt transferring from you to this lamb, to this substitute. And at the altar, the lamb would be killed in your place. And words of forgiveness would be declared over you by the priest saying, you are forgiven. So... If you were to walk through this experience in the Old Testament, the temple, God's temple, God's altar is preaching a sermon to you. It's preaching on the one hand that that you have welcome, that God is amazingly gracious, that he provides a way for reunion back to him, to to fellowship restored with him. He's the provider. He tells you how how to draw near to him, and he takes care of it. But at the same time, the temple is also preaching to you that sin is serious. Your sin is serious. And if God is going to maintain his justice, if sin is going, if he's going to maintain his justice, sin must be punished. It can't just be swept under the rug or winked at. And so you see that God's grace on the one hand is so lavish and rich and free, but at the same time, the altar teaches you that this grace is costly. That a life of a lamb, the life of a substitute has to take your place. A substitute has to give its life for sin to be forgiven and fellowship with God to be restored. So it's not like this little lamb had actually accomplished salvation. It was just a picture pointing forward to the true lamb that God was going to one day send 
the true Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, his own son, Jesus Christ. But this was a picture pointing forward that sin is costly, but God is amazingly generous, and he's going to provide. So at the altar, you see both of these truths at the same time. You see the depths of your sin, and you see the depths of God's grace for you. So if you want a quick definition for what a Christian is, a Christian is someone who makes his nest at the altar. A Christian is someone who lives there, that home base is at the altar, where you see continually more and more your sin, the depth of your sin, the need for repentance, the need for a Savior. You live there, but you also, on the other hand, see God's grace provided in abundance for you. So in verse 4, the psalmist is almost concluding this point in, in saying, Blessed are those, truly happy are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. So the psalmist is hearing the sermon that the temple is preaching. And he concludes that the good life, true happiness, true blessing, what his soul craves is found in God and in God alone. So we hear that. We hear that in verse 4. And if we're honest, we might take a step back and say, all right, that's a pretty bold claim. Like, really? Like, do you really think that my soul can find its satisfaction in God and in God alone? Like, do you know how deep these longings run in me? So the psalmist says, basically says, skip ahead to, to verse 10, where he says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the, in, in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So the psalmist is actually doubling down here. And he's essentially saying reunion with God trumps anything that you can think of, any experience you can think of on this earth. So imagine with me, instead of a genie in a bottle giving you three wishes, uh, a genie pops out of the bottle and he says, I got two options for you. One option, option one is one day in God's presence, 24 hours in God's presence. That's option one. Option two is a, a thousand day paid vacation, unlimited resources, money, all access to anything you want to do. You have a private jet to take you anywhere you want to go for a thousand days, paid vacation, all yours. That's option two. Which one do you want? So honestly, if we're thinking about this, it's shocking that experience-wise, the psalmist says option one is infinitely better than option two. And that's because, listen, God made us for himself. And St. Augustine was spot on when he said, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Or in other words, our hearts are homesick until they find their home in God. So if we took option two in this scenario, thinking that it'd be the delight of our souls, we'd be horrifically mistaken. And, and that's the truth. That's the disappointment of sin, of self-centeredness, of, of living for our own selfish desires. Though we'd have infinite access to all we wanted to do on this earth, every night when our head would hit the pillow after living it up all day, doing whatever we wanted, our heads would still hit the pillow and we'd still have this underlying sense of sadness and emptiness and homesickness. Well, if you don't believe me about this point, and if you don't believe the psalmist about this point, 
at least believe Tom Brady, right? Um, he's the guy in American culture that every guy would probably want to trade places with. He's got success. He's got talent. He's got fame. He's got incredible wealth. He's got the supermodel wife. Yet in an interview with 60 Minutes, you can look this up on YouTube later, um, he was interviewed about this, and he was listing all the things that he had accomplished in his life, all the success. And then for a moment, he kind of looks at the, at the camera, and you can see kind of despair come over, uh, come over his face. And he says, man, but there's got to be something more than this. You know, he experienced what a lot of celebrities experience. They reach their goal, the thing that they thought would satisfy the deepest longings of their hearts. And they wake up the next morning and they still feel empty. That's because our hearts are homesick till they find their home in God. So what are we to do? We're to embrace our homesickness. And once we've embraced our homesickness, the call is to move into your true home. Move into your true home, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, you have to see, is the true temple who dwelt among us on planet Earth. He, in him, the glory of God was truly on display. In him, we find true welcome and true security that our souls long for and our souls crave. He is the sacrifice for our sins. He's the lamb of God. He's the innocent substitute who takes our penalty and covers us with his righteousness. And with him, you got to see his gentleness, his his goodness, that even the sparrow, even the lowliest find welcome with him. If you look at his earthly ministry, it's like you, you can't not walk away with this conclusion when you see that even the prostitutes, even the lepers, even the widows, the little children, all find welcome with him. So much so that that's the only conclusion, that he really must delight, delight in receiving whoever owns their neediness and comes to him. That that's truly the delight of his heart, to receive those who come to him. That's what, just what he says in, in John chapter 6, where he promises, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So he's saying, if you, if, you go to, if you go to him in childlike faith, then it is his joy, it is his delight to sweep you into his loving embrace and forgive you, cleanse you, and restore you. And that's just who he is. So our call is to embrace our homesickness and to move in. So that's our first point. Our second point we're going to consider is because God is our true home, we can live with hope by anticipating our homecoming. This is where the psalmist, um, kind of like a good counselor, takes out his calendar for the homesick center and says, look, here's where you are. Here's the glorious home that you're headed for. And look, here's, here's all the in-between. So what's the in-between? Let's look at verses 5 through 7, where it says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose hearts are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. So he's saying our path from here to our true home with God goes through the valley of Baca. So what in the world is that? What is the valley of Baca? Well, it's interesting. There's no record, as far as we know, of a real valley named Baca. 
So likely what's going on here is that this is a metaphor. This is a kind of a play on words, kind of like in Psalm 23, when David says he's in the valley of the shadow of death. You know, that's probably not a real valley. That's probably just a metaphor for what he's going through, what he's experiencing. So in the same way, the valley of Baca is probably something like that. So what does Baca mean in the, in the Hebrew language? Well, it can represent two things. So first, Baca can mean weeping. So that's great news. We, our path from here to home is called the Valley of Weeping, um, Valley of Sadness, Sorrow. Well, the second thing this could also mean is it can refer to a type of tree that only grows in a desolate wilderness. So a type of tree that only grows in the desert. So put those two lovely images together, um, and that's our path home. It's the Valley of Baca. It's the Valley of Weeping. It's, it's a desert valley, a desolate valley through a sad, dry desert. So <laughs> the psalmist is giving us a healthy dose of realism here. That he's reminding us that this world is broken and we ourselves are broken. And we're going to face hard circumstances and deep sorrows and deep tragedies. And we're going to face evil uh, and even persecution as we seek to live a godly life. And we're going to face even the struggle and frustration of our own sin in our hearts. And so we should expect a difficult journey on our way home through the Valley of Baca. So, again, like a good counselor, the psalmist is saying, you know, this is where you are. You're in the Valley of Baca. But that's just half the story. It's just one stop on the way to glory. You've got to anticipate your homecoming. And that's what it says in, in verse 6. It says, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. So he's saying that on your way home through Baca, God so cares for you, so provides for you, that he transforms Baca from a desert to an oasis. That on your way to God's presence, you are strengthened and sustained by God's presence. And you can press on, you can endure, you can endure this hard journey. How? Verse 11 says that God is our sun and shield. He gives life and he protects our life. And it says he doesn't withhold any good from us. We can bank on him, we can count on him, we can draw strength from him. And verse 12 concludes that saying we are truly blessed, truly happy as we trust in him. And so it is as we anticipate our homecoming that we are filled with hope. And so here's the takeaway as we're traveling through Baca. It's get your head in the clouds. Get your head in the clouds. <laughs> Meditate on what Jesus has done for you. Fill your mind with what he's revealed about your glorious home in the future. You know, ten, people tend to scoff at that idea of like having your head in the clouds because it kind of insinuates like you're detached from reality. Um, but I find it interesting that C.S. Lewis once famously said, I believe it was in Mere Christianity, where he said, if you read your history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased 
to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. So the more we anticipate our homecoming, the more effective we'll be in this, in this world. And we actually care more about this world as a result of getting our head in the clouds because this is our future home. Planet Earth is our future home. Eternity is not going to be floating around in clouds or strumming harps or wishing we had brought a magazine to fill all this time on our hands. No, Revelation 21, Jesus says on the throne, behold, I am making all things new. You know, he he didn't say I'm making all new things as if he's going to recreate everything from scratch. No, he's going to renew everything. Eternity is as we read in Revelation 21, is heaven coming down, New Jerusalem coming down, and we ourselves at long last are completely renewed. There's no more sin, no more sorrow, and we're glorified, and our bodies don't waste away, but they last forever. So imagine how differently we'd all live if we lived more with an eye towards our homecoming. Um, I got married to my beautiful, amazing wife, Mackenzie, when I was 32, so it's a little later in life. Uh, So it means I had a long stretch of singleness to to walk through, uh, which was difficult. But I also wonder, like, looking back on it, how confident would I have lived if in those years I just had caught a glimpse? Someone was just able to let me see, like, hey, Mackenzie Hemphill is going to be your bride. Like, how differently would I have lived if, with that knowledge, with, that, with, with a, just a glimpse of that? I wouldn't have lived in such insecurity. I wouldn't have lived in such anxiety and worry, stress about all, you know, my future. I would have lived with confidence, knowing that something very, very good was coming my way. So that's the essence of the Christian life, that something better than you could ever imagine is coming to you. And not even you can mess it up because it's in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your true home was that you were made for, the home that you lost due to sin, has been restored to you by what Jesus has done and accomplished in your place for you on the cross. So what your heart's always desired, what the home you've always longed for is coming your way and will be yours. And you will live with Jesus, completely restored, forgiven, and he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And so how can we be so sure that such a confidence awaits us, that such a hope awaits us? How can we know that this is our true home and that we'll actually receive it? And the answer is don't look to yourself, but look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. See the Son of God who left his home, his home where he was perfectly loved by his Father in heaven, where he was adored and praised by countless angels. He left that to enter voluntarily human pain, human sorrow, human tragedy. And he voluntarily died a lonely and brutal death on the cross. He went through his own valley of Baca. Yet instead of blessing opening up to him for his perfect life of obedience, what opened up to him on the cross was the curse for all of sin that my sin and your sin deserves. And he took it off. Why? So that you and I might be reunited with him. So that you wouldn't be cast out. 
but welcomed into the eternal home of God. That's the gospel. The Son of God lost his home so that you might gain it back. Um, I'll close with this. Um, There's many places in the Bible where Jesus um, presses this point home to to abide in him, um, to to rejoice in the fact that our home is in him. And he calls us to, to keep dwelling with him, making our home in him. And John 15 is the place where he says, abide in me as my words abide in you and you will bear much fruit. But I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible, the little children's Bible, puts phrases this. It says, Jesus says, make your home in me as I make my home in you, and you will bear much fruit. Make your home in me as I make my home in you, and you will bear much fruit. That's the call of the Christian life. Make your home in him. Find your life, your security, your joy, your hope, your peace. Find it in him or you'll never know life. You'll never find it. Make your home in him, and you'll have life overflowing from him as you travel through this valley uh, of sorrow and sadness. And he's faithful to be with you through it. Because he is our true home, we can live with hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love, a love that does not stop um, even when we have uh, broken this world, um, even when we have sinned against you, even when we've turned from you, your love keeps coming and makes its home with us. We thank you for the love that was poured out for us on the cross that covers us and forgives us. And we pray that you would make us into a people uh, that, that seeks to live and dwell with you. I pray that you'd make us a church uh, that travels together through this wilderness, encouraging one another and pointing uh, to the joys of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.